Well, for our time then, this evening, let us return to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look this week at verses 37 to 47. We have gone through this chapter and we've now come to the end of it. And this will be the last time that we shall look at this chapter as we go through our study in the book of Acts. And indeed it is a very encouraging chapter for the church of God to dwell upon and meditate on a Lord's Day evening. The title I would like to give to the sermon this evening is Responding to the Gospel. Responding to the Gospel. We noticed last week that Peter took that opportunity to reveal the Lord Jesus Christ to the vast crowd that was before him. And when he came to the end of his sermon, as it's recorded here, and of course we do know and realize that all we have here basically is a very concise report of his sermon. But at verse 36, he then really begins to apply what he has brought to their attention. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And then we find in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and said unto Peter, and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And what we have here, friends, is what every preacher would love to encounter. That after he has preached the word of God, that there is a response. And this is what I want to focus on with you this evening, as we've given the title to our sermon, Responding to the Gospel. And there are three basic things that I wish to highlight from this text for our edification this evening. And it's all revolving around responding to the gospel. First of all, our first heading is clear. A response is to be expected. Maybe sometimes we go to the pulpit or we come to the house of God and we're under the means of grace. And this can apply to the the preacher as much to those who sit in the pews. Sometimes the preacher may go to the pulpit and he seeks to proclaim the word of God and yet secretly he is not looking for a response. Well, if that's the case, we need to correct our estimation and our opinion of preaching. Because friends, when you come to the house of God and when the preacher comes to the pulpit and he opens up the word of God, it's only right it's only fit and it's only proper that he should look for a response. Not because of his preaching, not because of who he is. But friends, if he's coming before you with the word of God, if he's coming with a burden as we noticed in the morning concerning Jonah, 
If God has sent that man to preach the gospel, and if that man has received a message from God, then surely, friends, there must be a response. And surely we should expect a response. Of course, in one sense, there is always a response. We're looking here at a very positive response and how we wish that was the case. But there is always a response to the preaching of God's Word. We cannot be neutral over this matter. It's either a positive response like here, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Or it is a negative response. Where we come into the house of God, where under the means of grace, we hear something from the word of God, and we go out just the way that we've come in. Is that so? That's maybe what you might think. But that's not exactly what happens. Because if there's not a positive response, there is a negative response. And the negative response is that the person who's come in with a hard heart and with an unrepentant heart and spirit, that person goes out with a heart that is even harder than what it was when they came into the building in the first place. We must dispel from our thinking that there is no response to the preaching of the gospel. If we go back, if we think about the very clear teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ about the sower and how he goes out and he sows his seed and that's what what a gospel preacher is like. He takes the seed of the word of God and he sows it indiscriminately. He takes handfuls of the seed and he sows it. Now there's always a response. In the parable of the sower there was a response. Some went to the hard ground and nothing happened. Something did happen. The devil took away the seed. And you know what happens friends. There was four soils mentioned in the parable of the sower. And there was a response in every one of these soils. But there was only a positive response in one soil. Where that soil brought forth fruit. Thirtyfold, sixtyfold, or a hundredfold. So let us be clear. There is a response. And we must expect a response. And we must therefore pray for a, a positive response to the preaching of God's word. Like what we find here. Oh yes we know, and many will say it to us. Oh but we, we believe in the sovereignty of God. Of course we do. Of course we do. No one's going to deny that most basic of doctrines that we find in the word of God. He is sovereign. Salvation is of the Lord. We recognize that. But there is a there is a response and it is to be expected. And we would notice here too that the Apostle Peter a faithful servant declaring that 
Jesus Christ was the one who had now been exalted and, and he re was risen up into heaven and he was the one now who had sent forth the Holy Spirit. What they could see was the result of the fact that Christ was exalted and he was now at the right hand of God and God had given him the gift of the Holy Spirit and Jesus has poured out this Spirit upon his church. Now Peter had said all of these things to them but he didn't stop there. He wasn't a preacher who would just deliver a message and say well you can take it or leave it. That was not the mindset of the Apostle Peter. What do we find here in verse 40? And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Testify. He was continuing to witness concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. It was not enough for him to give just the facts. He wanted to give them more and more. He was concerned about their salvation. He was concerned that they might respond profitably. And when he had opportunity, he would continue to bring and to bear the claims of Christ upon them. We are told here, he testifies. That's like a charge. He, he's like a witness. He's standing before them and says, I know about this. I saw the Lord Jesus Christ. I saw the risen Christ. He was testifying about his own experience in order to persuade them, in order to beseech them, in order that they might come and they might embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it say also? Testify and exhort. He wasn't a cold preacher. He was a warm-hearted individual. He had known the joy of having his own sins forgiven. He gloried in the great hope that lay before him. And he wanted others to know that hope. And therefore he would exhort them. What does that mean? Well he would seek to persuade them. He would invite them. He would beseech them. He was a winsome preacher. He simply did not convey facts. There was, there was emotion in it. There was passion in it. And it was all controlled by the Holy Spirit. It was not over the top. And Peter himself did not in any sense go beyond what was decent. But friends, he had a care and a concern for these people. And therefore he was, in some sense, this, this preaching and the conveying of this message of salvation, it overtook him. It constrained him. It's like what the Apostle Paul says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Is that not the case? Knowing the terror of the Lord. Well Paul knew the terror of the Lord. He knew what awaited those who would not embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore he was going to warn them. Knowing the terror of the Lord we persuade men. Well you could also turn that around with the Apostle Peter. Knowing the great love of the Lord. 
knowing the grace, knowing the mercy of the Lord, he would seek to persuade them that they might embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does he tell them to do? When they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter told them that they are to repent. An old-fashioned word. We don't hear it in modern conversation today. You'll not hear it on the, the media. Sadly, you might not even hear it in gospel churches today. But friends, if you study the Bible, and you don't need to study it in great depth to realize that repentance is something that runs from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You basically find all the prophets, they begin their message by saying, repent, turn back to God. You've gone your own way. And you need to turn back to God and the Old Testament prophets. What were they doing? They were telling people to come back to God, to come back to his law, come back, repent, change your ways. Well, it was exactly the same for the Lord Jesus. He began his mission, his earthly ministry. What did he say? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. What did his forerunner say? John the Baptist, repent. That was it. For the kingdom of God is at hand. And here Peter. In a new era. We might say the beginning of the Christian church. Here Peter stands up after proclaiming. And telling them about the Lord Jesus. And them asking him. What must we do? He tells them they must repent. Now what does repent mean? Well it certainly means to acknowledge your sin. But it means much more than that. Repentance involves the whole man. The whole man. What do we mean by that? Well, repentance affects our minds. Because of sin, our minds are not what they should be. There will be some maybe here tonight in this building, or maybe listening other ways. And they haven't got a clue what the preacher is talking about. It is as if he's speaking a foreign language. They're oblivious to what this means. And when you speak to them about the word of God and you try to explain the word of God to them. They don't understand. Why? Because sin has affected their minds Sin has affected the whole of man. And our minds are not an exception. That's why we don't understand the word of God as we should. It's because of our minds. It's because it's not clear to us because of sin. And sin has affected our wills. We are creatures who are made in the image of God originally. And we should be obeying the Lord our God. But we don't. Why? Because our wills have been affected by sin also. God has made us. He is our creator. He has provided everything for us. He's a loving and a gracious God. 
We should love him. By nature we don't. We don't have a heart to love the Lord our God. And therefore, when he cries out to them here to repent, he is addressing their minds and their wills and their hearts. He is revealing to them that they're not what they should be and they should turn to the Lord their God. And of course, as we will see later on as we go through the book of Acts, that repentance is not something that we can muster up ourselves. It's a gift. It's a saving grace. It's something that God gives to us. But we must do it. God gives the gift, but God will not repent for us. We must do it. Repent, he says. Repent. Repent of our sins. Repent of the fact that we don't understand the word of God. Repent of the fact that we're not obedient to him. That our wills are our own and we do our own thing. And we will not obey the Lord our God. Repent that we don't love him as we should. This is what required. But for these particular persons, when he told them to repent... It was largely in reaction to their reaction to Jesus Christ. They had got everything concerning Christ all wrong. All wrong. Their understanding, their thinking concerning Christ was all wrong. They thought he was a malefactor. They thought he was under the condemnation of God. They thought he was nothing but a criminal and an imposter. They had to realize that he indeed was the Messiah. He was God's son. And they had crucified him. And therefore, when Peter tells them to repent, it's largely in relationship to the reaction to Jesus Christ. And maybe this has hit a nerve with one or two here this afternoon or this evening. We must change our opinion concerning Christ. Christ is the only way to get right with God. He is the only Savior. There is none other coming. There's no other gospel. There's no other way. Repent therefore. And he goes on. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Peter preached in such a way to expect a response, and he got it. And therefore we must expect a response. Maybe too often we think nothing's going to happen. But that's not the case. When the word of God is brought forth, explained and applied, there is always a response. Well, secondly, we would notice too from these verses that the response was joyful. The response was joyful. Look at verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. 
and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. They heard this message. This message pricked their hearts. They realized that they were sinners and great sinners before God. How so? Well, they had rejected the Messiah. They had played their part in his crucifixion. And they had rejected whom God had set apart. And whom God had accepted. And who had demonstrated that he had accepted him by sending forth the Holy Spirit. And there was clear evidence, therefore, that Christ was a favorite in heaven. And they had rejected him. But they were delighted to hear this message. They were delighted to be told to repent. And and the gift of the Holy Spirit would be theirs. In other words, they would be reconciled to God. And therefore, they did what they did gladly. The response indeed was joyful. Does that surprise you? Does it surprise you indeed that it was a joyful response? Well, I put it to you, it should not. Why not? Well, then the gospel is good news. They had committed a terrible crime. Yet, Peter was talking about forgiveness, about reconciliation, about being restored, about having the favour of God again, about being saved. Does that not talk to you and tell you about something that should be joyfully accepted? Well, that's what it was for them. They gladly received his word. And what did they do? They cast their lot in with the primitive Christian church. We might not think an awful lot of this here in 21st century uh, Scotland. But what they did is... They turned their backs upon all that they had known before. They turned their backs upon the religion they were brought up with. And they were willing to be associated with this sect. Now the time would come when there would be persecution, there would be trials, there would be difficulties. But they were prepared to cast in their lot with this infant church. With all that would befall them, they were happy. They were glad to do it. They were not going to sit in the sidelines. They were not going to be spectators. They were absolutely joyful in it. Because they knew the wonder and the glory of salvation. They knew what it was like to be estranged and to be separated from God. But through what they had heard and through what they accepted, they were now in a joyful relationship with their Creator. And therefore, in some sense, they turned their backs upon the world and cast their lot in with these poor persecuted Christians. Their commitment would have cost to turn your backs upon your family, upon your inheritance, maybe upon your employment. The time would come when they would be excommunicated from the temple and the synagogue. Persecution would come. 
It would be difficult for them. But nevertheless, they did not hang around. They joyfully joined the church. They joyfully joined the apostles. They came together. This was a new life for them, a new experience. And they showed their commitment by making a public profession there. They were going to be baptized and they were brought into the church. And it was a joyful time for them. And so it should be for every Christian. How is it for yourself, Christian? What's it like? Oh, we know there can be dark times, dark days. But we also know the joy of the Lord. We also know what it is to have your eternal destiny secured. Surely we know what it's like to have our sins forgiven. For that great burden to be removed. A burden that we cannot remove ourselves. And nothing in this world can take from us. But Christ. Does that not fill you with joy? It did with these early Christians. And they showed it. Their response was a joyful one. Well then, thirdly, and finally we might notice, the response was sustained. The response was sustained. Verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. This is maybe something that we have not looked at before. As we've read this, we maybe not considered this. Here was a wonderful day. The Holy Spirit had come. There were signs and wonders. The people heard them speaking the wonderful works of God in their own language. There would have been a certain amount of emotion and a certain amount of excitement. Peter preached the gospel to them like he never preached before. There was a tremendous response. 3,000 were baptized and added to the church in that day. Maybe some people were carried along in a flood of emotion. That can happen. Verse 42 would tell us something different. We don't need to undo what we've said before. But what we do need to do is to add to it. That the response was sustained. This was no one hit wonder. This was not just something that happened one day and then it fizzled away. We are told here, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. This is something that was ongoing. They were devoted to the church. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the fellowship. They were devoted to meeting together. It talks here about breaking of bread. And it talks there in verse 46 of breaking bread from house to house. There's a debate amongst commentators. What's it talking about? 
it may well be talking about uh, the primitive church getting together and in some sense observing the Lord's Supper. More than likely, it's the primitive church gathering together in each other's houses and sharing food and fellowship one with another. There's no need to be concerned about the interpretation. But the fact is that they were devoted to this. This was something that was ongoing. This, this did not happen just for a day or two and then it fizzled out. This was their life. And it was sustained. What does it say here? They continued steadfastly. They devoted now, if you're devoted to something, you're not devoted for a, a half an hour or a day or a week. No, this was a long-term commitment. And therefore, the response was sustained. This was not a spot-of-the-moment thing. When they were pricked in their hearts, they were truly pricked in their hearts. And when they went forward, if you like, and they said, let us repent and let us believe the gospel and let us be baptized, it was a life-changing time for them. And it manifested itself by a long-term commitment. And they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, does it not say? The apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking in bread and prayers. In other words, the life of the church was their life. If there's one thing that does blight modern church life, it is nominalism. You didn't have to chase up these individuals to come out to a prayer meeting. I cannot grasp and I cannot get my head around Christians, and I'm talking about Christians here now, professing Christians. And I'm talking about professing Christians who maybe don't have many commitments. And they're fit, and they're active, yet they cannot come out to two services on the Lord's Day. I know people have other things in their lives. I know that. I know that it's difficult for the elderly we accept that, of course. We know that other people have duties and responsibilities that they cannot possibly do it. But I'm talking about individuals who have no real commitment to stop them coming to the house of God on two occasions. On the Lord's Day. Many Christians look upon the Lord's Day as the Lord's hour or the Lord's morning. But it's the Lord's day. You wouldn't have to tell these people. If there was something on. And they could make it. They would be there. And if they couldn't make it. It's because of infirmity. It's because they're, they're sick. Or something. They would have a good excuse. You didn't have to wind them up. You didn't have to phone them up and say, where were you? They loved to hear the apostles' doctrine. 
We have the apostles' doctrine in the Word of God. This is what we come to in the house of God. We read what the apostles tell us and what they teach us. This is what we bring. These people loved it. Christians should love this. And fellowship. It's more than a shake of the hands. It's more than simply saying to somebody, how are you doing? Fellowship, you're actually sharing in something. What do the Christians share in? The Christians share in Jesus Christ the Lord. Do we not have the same Father? Do we not have the same Saviour? Have we not been regenerated by the same Holy Spirit? Are we not on the same destination towards heaven? Do we not have more in common than simply food and family? Of course we do. We have Jesus Christ and what he means to us. This is what they had here. Fellowship. Real fellowship. The breaking of bread, whether it's primitive communion, whatever. Or whether it's just simply gathering around the table and having food with one another. Which in this culture was a very important thing. And when people gathered together to break bread, it was showing that they were one with another. Even without the communion element. And in prayers. Normalism, friends. Is a cancer. It takes away our vitality. These people, the early church, with no church buildings, yet they gather together. They were making use of the temple at this time, it was still open to them. That's where they met. And they showed their love and their devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was sustained. And it was sustained to such an effect that there was real love and unity among the brethren. So much so that people were prepared to sell their goods. And when they got some money they would hand it over to those who needed it. Now some people look at these things where it says in verse 45 sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men. They sometimes say this is primitive communism. Well that's not the case at all. It doesn't say that all the disciples sold all their property and give up everything. It just says that when people recognized a need They were prepared to sell what they have, to realize some money, and then to give it to people that they would recognize in the fellowship who needed help. The point is that from the day of Pentecost, the gospel went forth. There was a true response that day, and that response continued. It was a real work of God. We cannot say, of course, that all of these 3,000 continued in the way. We cannot say that. We do not know. We do know that on another occasion there is one mentioned in the Bible as Demas. 
who has departed, having loved this present world. We're not going to say that all 3,000 continued steadfastly, continually, but the large bulk and majority of them would have because the response was sustained. In verse 47, it's worth commenting on this, praising God and having favour with all the people. Here was the church, the infant church, and what does it say? Having favour with all the people. Jesus warned his disciples before he left them. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth in me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. And here the Apostle Peter preaching. And through his preaching, some 3,000 were added to the church. That's more than ever Jesus accomplished in his three years of ministry. That's the greater works. And the people, we are told, the church having favour with all the people. That could also be translated having good will towards all the people. This is an accurate translation here, having favour with all the people. But it could also be translated having goodwill towards all the people. And therefore, the response was sustained. It wasn't a spur-of-the-moment thing. It was something that went on and on and on. The gospel indeed came and changed their lives. And that's what we should expect. There should be a responding to the gospel. What is our response then? Christ has been proclaimed to us. Is he our Lord and Saviour? Have we come to him? Have we sought him? Have we called upon him? Have we said what these people said, men and brethren, what should we do? We must do exactly what they did. We must repent and believe the gospel. Amen. And may God be pleased to bless his word to us. Let us pray together.